Well, this is it. For season one, anyway. I hope you've learned a lot on the way to this point, because I certainly did. And that was always kind of the intent. I wanted to learn more about what makes people thrive in their professional lives, and pass on those takeaways to anyone listening. It's really that simple. So without further ado, here's my guest host, Charles Schwinn, with How to Reflect on a Podcast. We're broadcasting from CQHS Studios, and I have been a radio broadcaster for 31 years on various radio stations in the Halifax Regional Municipality, as well as on a national basis. My guest today is Michael Syme, who is the podcaster for How To, a series which has culminated 10 episodes. And today we're going to be discussing a summary of those experiences and the people who he's interviewed. Michael, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, how are you, Charles? Fantastic. Um, just so let's start off with, tell us a little bit about how to and how you came about with this idea. So originally, I was uh, it was born out of, I would say, equal parts frustration and curiosity because I saw people in the news and the media and magazines who were making these profound careers and really seeming to be thriving inside of them. But then in my own personal experiences, I was experiencing some success, but not in the fulfilling kind of way that I would have expected growing up. And so I was trying to, I thought, well, there's got to be people out there, real people who aren't in these magazine articles, who are experiencing this fulfillment. Um, we go through different pathways and a lot of experimenting in life. And so do you find that the people that you had interviewed found this early in life or late in life, or was it a personality thing or was it a mixture of them all? That, that was what I was probably most surprised at, is I expected going into this, the people who I would find who were doing things that they liked, I assumed that that was something they knew early on. And it's really just a mixed bag. It's some of them knew what they were doing from the get-go. Some of them, like Don Connolly, he didn't seem to really, in my opinion, completely mesh with his career until he was after 50. So that was one of the most awakening things to me is is to not... It's not like some light bulb goes off when you hit 20 and says, this is what I'm going to do. It's something you have to work at and something that may not... You know, that light bulb may never go off. But it's you just have to expose yourself to different things, and hopefully it does one day. There, Let's get down to the most basic things, is nurture versus nature. And I guess ambition is one of the big things that are uh, that a lot of the subjects have. And so was there a lot of stuff that influenced people with the environment that they were around, or was it their innate sense of drive that uh, that got them to where they were uh yeah it was one of that's one of those things where i was expecting before i started this to find a clear response to that but in reality uh like a lot of these people they were outliers from their family in purely the sense that they just kept doing more things which is really the what all these people have in common is that they had to keep going all these different positions, if you get stale or stagnant, 
then you kind of got left behind. And so all these people, whether again, it was from their family or just themselves, they did push themselves forward. But nature versus nurture, uh, it was really, hmm. <laughs> the, the non-answer here is it was both. There is a, there's an argument to be made for both. When you say that thrust of, of, of thrusting them forward in their direction, was it also very on a, on a latitude basis rather than the longitudinal? That the one direction was sort of the long-term goal, but latitudinally they needed to actually spread their wings out a little bit to not only survive, but also get the, what they used to say in university, the breadth and depth of knowledge of the world. Yeah, and that that's the biggest part is I think all these people who I've spoken to, the, all these 10 episodes, absolutely none of them are the type of people who hear an idea and reject it. They will all consider the idea, consider the source, think about how it applies to them and process it all. But none of them have this shield up that will reject different ideas. And I think if you're that type of person, then the more you see the more breadth and depth, the better. At the end of the day, if you're not exposing yourself to new ideas, like you know, if you're Tamsin going off on these different trips and making the most of these circumstances or reading new books, going to different places, going on to Nicaragua on a whim, if you're not doing that stuff, then you're just gonna lose traction. I think you always have to be exposing yourself to new ideas. Let's go to the technical side of doing these podcasts. You picked a medium that has been very popular in the last decade, and as we're ending this decade, it has become the medium for communication, the interview, the long form. In a society that is based on a lot of short clips, the long form interview has become somewhat of an exemption in this medium of podcasting. And why do you think that is? I, I think the form, this long form interview, that's as old as time itself. I mean, I think people have been having these types of conversations to get to the kernels that drive them far before there were microphones. But even in the 20th century, you have, you know, like Larry King, these just, all they do is interview. There's no other, there's no other substance to what they're doing besides the interview. And so I think there's always a demand for those types of things. But the truthfully, Charles, the reason that I'm doing it in this way is not because I think there's a demand for it. It's not because I think it's a valuable uh, storytelling device, although it is. The reason I'm doing it is because that's what I like doing. I like having these long conversations with people. And you don't get that type of thing in your day-to-day -day life. It's nice to sit down with someone and to find out what makes them tick. So that's why I like doing it. It serves my selfish benefits. And it's like, well, if I can make a podcast doing this at the same time, great. The medium is uh, something that is so wonderful to be able to talk in this long form way. You have 45 minutes that you need to filter down a lot of information and trying to curate it. I remember in the, in the 90s, we made the best we could with the material that we had, just the same thing as the library and its limited resources of the books that they had. Now that everything is available to us at our fingertips and limitless music, limitless resources, limitless film that we have, it is now the talent of the person to curate the material in a fashionable way. And I mean, I think another way of the job that you're just describing to me that's editing essentially 
And that's what, uh, that was really hard for me when I started because like, I remember I was sitting with Zen and we had like three hours of material and I thought it was all good. And I was like, well, how do I do this? How do I cut stuff out? But I just kept listening to it and listening to it. And after listening to it enough times and developing a, almost a memory of that log of, of audio, there was a thing, I was like, well, there's enough on this to have that as a segment. Zenin talked enough about this subject that it was a whole thing. And then you do that enough times, and then all of a sudden, you start to recognize the outliers, the things that don't have a home in your recording. And that's all it was. I found that if I just listened to it enough times, the outliers emerge and you're comfortable cutting them. But it took a lot of times to listen to it to be comfortable cutting things out. That somehow makes it the message by leaving it out. Yeah. That is the talent. That's what a filmmaker has to do to say, was the scene in this particular movie that I'm making necessary or by taking it out, wouldn't that imply the next scene or yeah. that action? And that is, I think, one of the best talents that you need to, and that you need to acquire when doing a format such as this. And those scenes sometimes are wonderful. They're lovely and they're perfect, but they just don't belong with the rest of it. If you hear any director, yeah. you would hear in the DVD commentary or in their audio track, oftentimes they would say, oh, I just love the scene, but I just had to take it out yeah. in order to do that. And that's something I'd love to do someday is, is compile these things and put them in another episode of things that were great, but just didn't fit because it, it's a weird way to uh cut something and be like oh this is wonderful it was a great piece he explained everything flawlessly so i had to cut it <laughs> we'll come back to this after because yeah. i got a lot more to talk about on that regarding that job that supports the lifestyle of your interviewees um tell us a little bit about the guests that you had and how their job related to i guess the way that they live and their extracurricular activities and how that relates to that yeah, uh, and that's, again, before I started this, I wasn't expecting people to say, oh, I did it for, you know, I got this job because it was just supported lifestyle. I thought people who didn't like their jobs, that's what they found. They were like, well, it supports my lifestyle, so it's okay that I don't like it. But again, it was more complicated than I expected. You have people like, again, Tamsin, who wanted to be in a Asian country. So that's where she moved. And journalism was applicable there. And then another one that comes to mind, Simon Larochette, he likes talking to people. He likes hanging out. He likes meeting different people. And that's what his job is. People come in, new people all the time, and he spends time with them for two to 10 hours a day. And so all these people there, it's, there's no line between lifestyle and job. It's this weird continuum and it doesn't, there's no end. You know, there, some of these people had better, uh, you know, finishes to their work week than others, but a lot of them, it didn't, it didn't ever finish. You know, they'd go home on Friday. They might've gone out after work with some colleagues and had some drinks, but still talked about work. In my opinion, that's not finishing your work week. And then they might've gotten up early on Sunday morning and open up a laptop and research some new ways to record musicians. In my opinion, that's still work. But isn't that sort of the trend now with technology? 
with jobs now that the work week is never finished anymore. It's more of a 24 seven than a nine to five, 40 hours a week, um, you know, Monday to Friday. It's that we're constantly on email. We're constantly, unless if you actually force yourself to do that, if you're on your phone, there has to be some sort of work, unless if you absolutely choreographed it so that you did not have work sneak into your life. So I used to think that was always bad. I thought people who couldn't separate their work and their life, I thought they had something they needed to fix. But what I learned was some of those people, they're fine with that. That's because they like what they do. And that was always different for me in my work experience because I, again, coming from accounting, like I had no interest in creating a financial statement on Sunday afternoon. I wanted to do anything but. So to hear these people talk about doing work on the weekend in not a disparaging way, I was confused. And I had to ask a lot of follow-up questions to truly realize that they're, no, they're not just lying <laughs> and making it sound better than it is. They, they really do like what they're doing. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing anymore to, uh, to not have that distinction between work and life. Again, there's healthy balances and not, but uh, ultimately it's, it's, you got to judge the scenario for yourself. Being in Halifax and a Haligonian, born and bred, and so did that make you somewhat biased in the way that you saw people's occupation? Um, being here in Halifax myself for 18 years, I've learned how to live life again. And I think that whole waking up and having the Sunday night blues and waking up at 6.30 in the morning and commuting to work on a bus and dreading your work that's there's a lot of people that are out there that dread their job so are you biased in in what you feel should be the way and are you biased in the interviewees that you selected uh i'm 100 percent biased i i need to acknowledge that completely because not only am i biased in my interviewee selection the interviewees who are available to me show my biases charles you're the first person who's not white who's been on my podcast. These are all sorts of things that I'm like trying to address in the upcoming season, but it, it's hard. And so that's why I feel like since if I'm not actively and successfully treating these biases, then at least I have to acknowledge them. But with being in Halifax and there's kind of a slower pace of life on the East Coast, I prioritize people who have some sort of balance. Because I do think that you, if you get caught up in the magazine articles of successful entrepreneurs, like there is, there's a gruel, there's a grind there that is not shown. So I really want to make sure that I'm not glossing over that hard work. So when I talk to people, one of the things I want to make sure I ask and get real relatable anecdotes for is sleepless nights, whether it's through anxiety of their work, simply the time consumption um, the lack of pay, all of those things I want to clearly illustrate because I really want to show that it's not all sunshine and roses. On your subjects, in summary, you have some occupations where you would obviously need some sort of educational academic um, level of uh, completion. Um, what was the role of uh, education in academia? Uh, coming from a person like myself who did not get through university, sometimes you feel like you're a fraud. 
much in the same way as uh, sometimes you feel like a fraud because you're not gaining a check or a paycheck at the end of the day for doing something that you love. How did that uh, fare with all of your subjects? So on, on reflection, I really don't think a single one of my guests said to me that their education was something that was crucial for the sake of the experience. If it wasn't every single one of them, it was eight out of 10 of them. Education was simply a rung on the ladder that they weren't focused on. It was the three after it. And they just had to hit that rung. And there was varying degrees of that, but they all were looking at it as a stepping stone. And that was a huge difference between all the people I interviewed and me. Because I was like, well, you get the education and uh, the rest unveils itself. I wasn't looking past that ladder rung. And uh, I think that's an important thing for, especially again, the intent of this podcast was to enlighten the youth of today and to let them know that education isn't the goal. It's the stuff after. And they all had that in common. They all were using education to get somewhere. So from episode one to episode 10, do you feel less of an imposter by doing these podcasts? Great question. Um, hmm. To me, that imposter guy never goes away. Like he's shouting in my head right now. You're like, yeah, you're an imposter. That's what he's telling me. Um, but you just have to be comfortable, like if you're me or maybe some other people out there, that that voice in your head is never going to go away. You just have to learn how to ignore it, not listen to it. The person you are is sometimes the person holding you back. And it should be easier than it really is to uh, to ignore yourself. <laughs> but it's it's probably the most challenging thing to overcome is to believe in yourself. Again, it sounds so cliche, but at the end of the day, if, if you're comfortable with the job you did, if you feel like you did a good job, then you need to accept that as enough. Again, it's so nice to be paid for it. But if you got paid for a job you didn't do well, you're not going to do that forever. It's going to... It's going to get old pretty quick. Was there anything that was so far negative in each of the jobs that just made it absolutely awful that they just could not bear that was covered? So I, I was, again, I try to find, I want to identify the best and the worst of these jobs. And I did find a lot of things that they hated, you know, whether it's paperwork uh, or, you know, just... Uh, the admin stuff. Admit, exactly. <laughs> you know, that like... The menial tasks. That kind of stuff. Or maybe, um, again, with Simon, he didn't like working by himself. Or Zen and what uh, the delegation of, of, of work and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. his that statistics was never in his strong suit. So Zenon says, I'll happily hand this off. But sometimes he had to do it. But the truth is, for anybody I talk to, uh, all of those terrible things were, uh, they were just tiny little speed bumps. They weren't de they weren't the derailing things that I expected them to be. And so the most stark example of that is when I was asking David Amiro about uh, patients who would pass away in the, like under his care. Well, number one is he very simply answered, uh, death is not very common in orthopedic surgery, but you're around it. And I mean, his very simple answer, which I should have expected was, you have to get used to it or you don't continue. It's as simple as that. 
And so I think for a lot of these people early on in their careers, they identify those terrible things and think, I have to learn how to cope with this. In doing this podcast, did you achieve any new views or new opinions? Things I wasn't expecting uh, was when I viewed entrepreneurship uh, before doing this podcast, I always viewed entrepreneurship as a job title. And there was always this allure, this romanticism attached to being an entrepreneur. But what I came to realize is that it's simply a style of work. Some people do it more than others, but it's not like it's a job title. Simply put, it's how you approach your work. Are you looking for alternative approaches, creative solutions, or are you doing what was instructed to you? And it's not that one of those is better than the other, but they're just different approaches. And so it, that was one of my biggest takeaways is that you can be an entrepreneur in any line of work. So that was one of my biggest takeaways. Do you think it's a generational thing too? I think it's generational insofar as today, since there's so many new technologies, that it's a little more accessible to do things alternatively. Whereas 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you're going to find an alternative approach to something, I think you had to be a little bit more creative and certainly have more gumption or risk appetite. So with all the different approaches that there exist today, I think there's more options to be creative. There's more options to be entrepreneurial, but it's always existed. Your monologue that you had for that eight minute piece of summary of all of the episodes was one of the masterful presentations of monologue speaking that I've heard in recent years. And this coming from lack of a better term, a novice who hasn't done this type of um, line of work before was very, very theatrical. It was something that I would have to work very, very hard on. And I'm wondering how much work it took you in order to do that. So that, that's a great example because one of the things I had to really consciously work on, which originally I thought would happen very naturally, was having the tone of your voice and the dynamics be uh, a part of the communication. So you have your content and then your pitch, your stress in your voice, your all these things comprise the whole content. And so the way I think of it is like if you're a performer on stage, you have to overdo your makeup to be seen in the back. I think you also kind of have to overdo your voice to be understood correctly. So in that, when I was speaking by myself, when I listened to it back originally, I was like, oh, geez, that sounds monotone. But I wasn't speaking monotone. It was just, it was just not enough juice. So one of the things that I had to do to uh, amend that, at least as far as my opinion goes, is when I'm speaking there in my closet, I had to use my hands to talk and I had to almost get into the message. I'd imagine I'd be talking to someone and it, like I should record it sometime because I think it looks really silly. No, absolutely not. Call center people <laughs> have been told when you're working in a call center to smile when you're talking and the smile comes through the phone. Yeah. Oh, it totally does. And it, like sometimes, uh, Sometimes I have to laugh. I have to fake laugh. But the fake laugh very quickly turns into a real laugh. And then you hear that. You hear the genuine nature of that. And that Quote, unquote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like genuine in an artificial way. Yeah. But I, I, 
I really thought that that would be easier, but that actually took work. It was that was the fun kind of work for me is working on how to make your voice sound interesting, but not in the ways you'd expect. What were the biggest challenges and aspects of uh, doing this 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 cast? So it, it's uh, like there's one of them, just what I just did there. It's a uh, and then I exhale into the microphone like that. Once I started listening back to my voice and hearing my vocal tics and faux pas and things that are not appealing to listen to, to curb those, to minimize those, to make it easier to edit, to make it more easy to listen to, that was one challenge. See, you are a different person after. <laughs> yeah, this no, true. It, See, you changed the way in which you present yourself. Yeah, you have to be like a little more careful, but not so careful that it sounds... Artificial. Exactly. The happy medium. But then also, uh, simply, that first time I was listening back to a recording and hearing my own voice. Very awful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, no. I, I had to spend, you know, puberty... So you're not just talking about me in particular. I'm not talking about you in particular. <laughs> I hated my voice. Yeah. I hated everything that there was about it. I thought it sounded too high. Uh, I thought it sounded too girly. I, I thought it sounded everything. And I had to work on this. Also work on the stammer, work on the pronunciation, work on every aspect of how my voice sounded on the microphone until I got it right. And I had to adjust to that. So let's really break it down here. How much time does it take to prep an, an episode and, um, and be able to edit from start to finish? Well, I almost don't like saying this because uh, I think of like the bang for your buck type of thing. If people knew how much time it took to make an episode, then be like, really? Like that took that long? Jeez, it doesn't sound like it would have taken that long, which I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. It but is a compliment because... Simplicity always takes a lot of work, and it's very, very difficult to be able to achieve that and to achieve that. It's like this. Nobody knows that. People think that you're just talking and you press the record button and then you push publish and that was it. It's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. So how much more to it? Um, I, I was running through these figures and I thought these can't be real, but I mean, they are. So... I had 10 guests to, you know, to get the guest and to have the interview. Sometimes I meet them for coffee before. I'll talk to them for 45 to 90 minutes. And then the interview itself on the short end would be two hours. On the long end, uh, granted this was with a friend, so we were catching up at the same time. At the long end, an interview ran five hours. And then you got to bring that two to five hour material down to 45 to 55 minutes. And so historically, per episode to do that, that's taken me usually 40 to 70 hours per episode, which, I mean, translates to a full work week or more of just editing. Which is either one or two hours per minute. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so, I mean, in your experience? That's exactly the math. Well, um, that makes that me... Is <laughs> the form, that, that, that is, you've hit the, the mark bang on. So, yeah, I mean, you add that up, that's 10 episodes. Um, 
that's about 400 hours of work or like 10 weeks. And so I think back the last year, did I spend 10 weeks working on this at the minimum? And it feels crazy to say that I did, but I mean, the math isn't, you know, <laughs> deceitful. So I, thinking of it in that frame makes me feel weird. To be honest, like I'm still happy with everything I've done. I think I've done a good job, but like that's a long time to be working on something that I have not yet made a dime from. And I don't know how I feel about that. Planning the interviews, scheduling, tell me, was it hard to be able to get the booking? With scheduling interviews, the most difficult part for me was... uh <laughs> facing rejection of people who I asked. So yeah, I mean, the scheduling part's not, you know, it's not uh, mindless, like you have to coordinate a time. And uh, that's difficult, because a lot of people have very different schedules from yours, and you have to meet them on their time. And, and so that's not easy to find, but it's accomplishable. But the thing that was so challenging for me was earlier on, like last winter, once I left my close circle of interviewees who I knew quite well. And I started asking people who I didn't know very well on. I felt like I was going out on a plank. And, and I asked, there's plenty of people I've asked who um, I still think would be very interesting. And I can think of two or three people who just, you know, never got back to me. Like at first, that was, that was kind of, it sucked when that happened. But then you're like, ah, oh, you know what, don't take it personally. They're not intending it to be personal. So that was another thing that was better is uh, just this comfort in, I guess, rejection. It's hard to, it's hard to describe because the reality is there, the, everyone who's been on my show has done me a great favor. And so the people who haven't have simply not been in a time and a place where they could do me a great favor. And when you phrase it like that, that's, that's acceptable. There's a number of things like that, which are really unintended consequences. I wasn't expecting to be more comfortable on that end as a result of doing this podcast. Uh, but I'm happy to have those skills now, happy to have those traits. Very good. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me, Charles. This, <laughs> You're welcome. This has been a lot of fun and uh, look forward to talking to you next time. Well, thank you very much. Michael Syme from the CQHS studios in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm Charles Schwinn. Thank you for letting me broadcast for you. All right, well, that felt different. I really wouldn't have expected answering questions to feel so different from asking them, but I gotta say, I definitely felt a little bit nervous when we started recording that day. Okay, but well, where do we go from here? Well, there's going to be a break, because this time I'm actually going to release things on a schedule, rather than, you know, just hoping for the best. So in order to do that, the work is going to have to move behind the scenes, I already have five great recordings, which just need some TLC. So I'm going to complete work on all five of those recordings before you hear any new episodes. Although I guess this is kind of standard for normal people who podcast. So yeah, live and learn. But here's the big question. What is in store? It's going to be awesome. For starters, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of athletic coaching. A.J. Tufford explains in great detail how almost all of the hard work that coaches do goes completely unnoticed by the public or the fans. It was pretty eye-opening for me and an excellent insight for anyone with an interest in football, athletics, or the St. Mary's Huskies. 
Amy Schwartz tells me about how she balances three completely different jobs. Being a serious entrepreneur, being a mom, and of all things, a government employee. With her business partner and husband, she somehow managed to start a successful surf retreat for digital nomads in Peru called Unleash, alongside a 9-to-5 job for the government. How is that even possible? And what exactly is a digital nomad anyway? Then I finally get a chance to sit down with a guy who I first met at one of the very first jobs I had. At the time, he was a valet and a concierge, but now Mark Heisink makes beer. And if you live in Halifax, you've probably had some of this beer. It's one of Nova Scotia's most critically acclaimed breweries, Two Crows. I've wanted an insight into this industry for a long time now, and Mark was able to provide that insight. Joni Sanford then gets to tick a box that I've had for quite a while. I've wanted to learn more about the classic job that we all think we know, a high school teacher. If you think that it's a straightforward career path, let me tell you, it's anything but. Taking ownership over your teaching, managing the insanely diverse workload, and remaining productive and happy doesn't just happen automatically. And the last tidbit I can provide is in this exploding arena of health and wellness. Physiotherapist Jesse Roy tells me about how rewarding her work can be and the giant psychological element that goes into rehabilitating and maintaining a healthy body. Jobs that work with people day in and day out certainly never get predictable. And Jesse can tell you all of the pros and cons that go along with that. So what about episodes 6 through 10? Well, we're all going to have to wait to hear more about those, but uh, feel free to send me some recommendations. So if you're still listening at this point, and you have been since day one, I really can't express how nice that is. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it added value, but it really does provide some validation to see listenership rise. And my heart skips a beat whenever I see someone recommend my podcast to a friend. So feel free to share more often. But beyond that, I'll keep you posted. And look forward to continuing this journey into spring 2020. Until next time, this has been Mike Syme with How To.